Welcome back. It's Monday, 5 o'clock, here at the beautiful studios in Port Ritchie, Florida, of WeBeam TV. Welcome to 62 Who Knew. I uh, hope you're all doing good. I think I mentioned this a couple of times. got an email from somebody that started out with this phrase, and uh, I asked him if I could use it. He said, go ahead. Um, and it said, I hope your attitude is positive and all your tests are negative. Uh, what, what a COVID-19 uh, way to start a, an email. But that's what I hope for all our viewers is that your attitude is positive and all your tests are negative. Welcome today. I want to thank last week's guest, which is what we always start with, uh, Mr. Peter Gelbach, who is joining us today as one of our panel members. Uh, we had a more of a personal than professional uh, discussion last week about why he uh, and his wife decided uh, to be some of the among some of the first people after the first responders, of course, uh, to get the uh, new COVID-19 vaccine. I'm still on the fence a little, but uh, I'm leaning heavily towards um, getting it now and trusting the science after sitting in on a webinar uh, from the Weizmann Institute in Israel. I learned a lot more uh, about the COVID-19, and I'm leaning very heavily towards trusting the science. So um, until uh, before we get to our guest tonight, our new guest that's here along with Peter, uh, I want to thank everybody for watching last week. We had about 75,000 viewers. Uh, we're getting new viewers every week. And for that reason, I always take about 30 seconds for our new viewers just to give you the synopsis. What is 62 Who Knew really about? And here's what it's about. It is about the longer lifespans that we all get to enjoy today. As you think about it, I'm 62 years old. My father his father, pretty much his father before him. As they approached the age of 62, they all had the same questions. Your parents, your, your grandparents, they had those questions as well. Should I take Social Security or should I defer it? Should I keep working? Should I take money out of savings and pay off my mortgage? Do I really need a mortgage during retirement? Maybe I should just keep working and defer my Social Security so I get more. Is it too late to get long-term care insurance? Can a person my age maintain their life insurance? When is the time to start thinking about Medicare, which, of course, is three years from now when I'm 65, Medicare supplemental policies? You know, Do I have enough in the stock market? Do I need to take enough risk? Should I take everything out of the stock market? The questions are endless. And we all ask the same questions, generation after generation, except for my generation, except for the baby boomers. We have one more obstacle to overcome that our parents and grandparents didn't have, and that is the double-edged sword, the mixed blessing, if you would, of longer lifespans. According to the American Medical Association, if you make it to 65 in this country, or actually 62 in this country, notice I didn't say healthy, just make it to 62 in this country, you have a 50-50 shot of making it to 90. If you're in a married couple, one of the married couple has just slightly below a 50% chance making it into their early to mid-90s. So who knew at 62? that you could still have 30 more years. That's half the time you've been here. To be here in this world, be with your children, your grandchildren, the rest of your family, and live a high quality of life. 
And the sad truth is, in this great country, less than 1% of the population of this country can live from 62 to 90 without some help. Financially, it's only the top 1%. So we do have to work. We do have to be cognizant of our Social Security and deferring it. We have to be cognizant, certainly, of a medical event that would necessitate us having some sort of coverage like long-term care insurance. Do we need a reverse mortgage? The question is, how does the other 99% of us get through that 30 years with style and with quality of life? And that's what 62 Who Knew is about. And uh, obviously, um, the principle has uh, been accepted. Our show is approximately, what is this, John, show 91? 91. So we're almost at two years. We're about a year and, ten, a year and nine months. And obviously, we started at zero viewers and are now up between 70 and 80,000 every week. So we thank you for that. And uh, it is guests like we have tonight that have allowed us to grow uh, to this audience. So without further ado, let's bring them on, John. Um, Mr. Peter Gelbwax, who has become a regular uh, on our show and uh, has been spoken about on our show so many times. Our audience knows he's uh, one of my truest friends, experts, confidants, a living legend in the long-term care insurance galaxy. Um, if you look up, actually, long-term care insurance in the Webster Dictionary, there's a picture of Peter Gelbach. It's, it's, really, it's really amazing. So Peter is here uh, with one of his best friends, financial planners, and nationally recognized, Mr. Tunde Ogalana. And um, Tunde, welcome here for the first time. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks you, for having me. Uh, you know, I'm not going to read your whole resume because that would take too much time, uh, but I do want to read some of it uh, to make sure that our viewers really know, um, quite frankly, uh, the depth of your experience, uh, the depth of the opinions that they're going to hear today. Uh, I've only known you for a couple of weeks, uh, but the couple of conversations that we've had, Peter sent me your newsletter today, your weekly newsletter, uh, which we're going to make available to our audience. Um, the insights of it um, are truly um, admirable, laudable. I mean, I don't know how anybody could not read this and walk away and go, I need to listen to this man. Um, so just a little bit about Tunde. Uh, as a family wealth advisor, he focuses on serving clients uh, and families in all the areas of their financial lives. Tunde actually founded Axial Family Advisors in 2015 after having spent his career employed by one of the world's largest service, servicing firms at the time. But he still felt he was limited to provide all the service he needed to. And of course, many limitations come from working with a large organization. So the need to step out on his own uh, was right in front of him. This is his website, um, which is a beautiful website. He felt that need to step out on his own. And of course, he did it. Uh, Tunde has earned the Series 7, Series 6, 66, Series 24 licenses. Uh, he is also a certified financial planner, a CFP, and just a quick, quick um, disclosure that as a Series 6, Series 66, Series 7, uh, we're not going to be doing any opinions tonight on investments. Let's not, uh, we're not going there. We're going to get the opinions of a highly trained 
and highly educated professional in the financial world. And again, we thank you for being here. Um, I always ask the same question. I've had comedians on the show. I've had travel agents on the show, Peter's daughter. Um, I always ask the same question. What brought you into the financial planning world? Um, why? Why would you pick that of all things? Um, well, first of all, thank you, Michael, for having me on. That was a, a, a very humbling intro and great. So uh, before I get into that, I'm going to ask you, because I have three kids, uh, if you can just come over to my house every day and make that intro in the mornings when I, when I come out so that my kids understand. Absolutely. Daddy's getting ready <laughs> to come that out. Bad. For, <laughs> Daddy's getting ready to come out for breakfast. Let's be prepared for this intellectual <laughs> and breakfast talk now. And here he is. So let, let them know their old man accomplished something. At some let them watch this. <laughs> but but, um, but no, uh, <laughs> yeah, to answer uh, directly, um, it's a great question. I'd say a couple of things brought me into this business. Um, one is I do think, um, uh, like most of us, there's, there's something personal in it. So when I, when I think about it, um, it's probably I was raised in, you know, Washington, D.C. area. And um, my, uh, my parents got divorced, unfortunately, when I was uh, still a young kid. So I, I was raised by my mom primarily. And, um, you know, she had the typical kind of single mom check to check situation. So as a young kid, I'm talking 10, 11 years old, um, I kind of had this visceral emotional feeling that I didn't want to follow in those financial footsteps as much as um, my mom was awesome and she's a great person. But from a financial standpoint, I knew that I wanted to have a different level of control over uh, my own finances than I saw her having over hers at the time. And so um, that's, I think, part of, if I really look back that far, and then, um, but my mom um, also instilled in me a great love for science and medicine, things like that, and because she had gone to med school. And um, so I was actually a pre-med major uh, at college when I was my first two years. And so I was all ready to go down that road. And unfortunately, even though I got A's and B's in all my anatomy and zoology classes, um, when I hit chemistry, uh, you know, chemistry and I didn't get along too well. And um, on the second F, um, my counselor told me that if I ever pass general chem, I still got to do organic chem. And um, that led me to look for a different major. <laughs> and I, mm -hmm. I went from medical school to looking at the school of business. And I would say that that, um, you know, getting into finance, I always like math and, and kind of starting to take some of the financial classes or what um, finally got me into uh, going down the road of really looking at finance as something for me to do for as a career. Um, well, I'm glad I asked, you know, uh, of course, I asked that question of Peter, you know, years and years ago, even before I had a TV show. And it was also his mom. Uh, that got him into the long-term care insurance business. May I ask, Tunde, is your mom still with us? No, unfortunately, we lost her to bone cancer in 2015. I'm so, so sorry, but I know, yeah, uh, I absolutely know in my heart, she had to be proud of what you've accomplished. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, it had to be, just absolutely had to be. So we are in a very weird, you know, to say that this is a volatile economic future, of course, we're always in a volatile economic future, but with the things that have happened in the last couple of years, the things that have happened in the last couple of weeks politically and economically, um, the world is a little topsy-turvy. I may be biased, but I think the world is always topsy-turvy when the United States 
is unstable. And there's no way to get around it. We're unstable right now. And I think we guide the world. That may be egotistical or too pro-American, but I think the world goes as America goes. What do you see, not only with what's happening today, with a new regime coming in, um, but what do you see from the economy uh, with COVID, taking into consideration COVID-19? Um, what are we looking at in 2021, you think? Um, I'll be honest first and say I have no idea. Um, <laughs> you brought me an honest person, Peter. Yeah, I know. It's tough go. being honest because <laughs> We can just twiddle our thumbs for the rest of the show. No, um, but I say that straight up because um, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I can forecast out the next 11, 12 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, had we been here 12 months ago, uh, I would have had, you know, all these forecasts like everyone else. And then COVID showed up a right. month, a month and a half later. So which derailed everything. Um, I would have thought last March, April, as we were looking at, the world shut down for the first time ever at the same, you know, everything shut down at the same time. And we were losing seven, eight million jobs a week. Remember those days? Um, I would have thought that we'd be in a great depression right now. So the, the ability to try and predict in this environment, uh, you know, uh, let's put it this way under normal circumstances, making these type of predictions a year out economically is impossible, um, uh, maybe extremely difficult at best. So I think when we have the things like this global pandemic, um, you know, it, it's impossible to forecast because let's just say that there is another um, aggressive strain as yes. this recent one that we've seen come out, uh, I guess, of, from the UK or, you know, the last couple months. Let's say another strain happens to be aggressive and more fatal. Mm-hmm. Or let's say, you know, there's vaccines in everyone's arm by June. I mean, those are two def- very different tracks. Yeah, very diverse that, thing. Yeah, very, very, um, you know, bifurcated outcomes that uh, or, or uh, probabilities, let's put it that way, that could create opposite outcomes. So I would say this, though, under normal kind of under what we've already seen, right, if the trajectory remains the way it's been, um, it appears that the rate of death per infection has gone down, uh, mm-hmm. thankfully. Um, it appears that the world is figuring out how to live and cope, you know, doesn't appear that the whole world is going to shut down again. Um, and I've seen estimates at this point that, you know, if everything goes smoothly for the rest of this year in terms of vaccination and all that stuff, um, the U.S. could be back to normal in the first quarter of next year. So literally a year from now. Wow. So um, what does that mean for the economy? I'm not sure what does that mean for maybe the stock market and interest rates, which might be of more interest to people because that deals with their money. Um, I'm not sure, obviously, either. But what I would say is I think the trade that we saw, that kind of, quote, unquote, COVID trade, um, probably still continues under this environment, meaning, you know, the technology stocks, um, the, the companies that have benefited from people being at home. And, 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 you know, like Amazon and, and Apple and, and, and Peloton and Tesla and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that continues. But I do think also one thing I'm curious uh, is, like you mentioned, regime change. You know, here in the United States, uh, we're going to have a new administration in 48 hours. And they're going to have their own spending plans. So it'll yes. be interesting to see what those are. Um, no different than the current administration had their spending plans, and and that worked out for economic, um, like the growth yes, of certain economic did. sectors. 
Uh, and that'll happen again with the new administration, that, that their spending plan will promote certain economic uh, sectors. So I, will, I would make a guess um, without getting into like deep politics, but we can assume that a Democratic administration may promote things like, let's say, clean energy. Um, I also recognize that um, the Biden administration has announced they're going to make um, a, this, a, like a, an office of science or something like that, a cabinet level position. Mm-hmm. So I think that combined with um, President Trump's creation of the Space Force uh, would probably lead us to see heavy investment in areas like, you know, technology with space and, mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. So I think there's like with anything, when you have a, um, a massive economy like ours, a government budget that's, you know, four plus trillion, a GDP of 20, 25 trillion annually, there's going to be opportunities for um, someone to make money somewhere. That's right. So I think that, you know, even if we have a correction, I think that the economy will continue to expand and grow. Um, it's just I'm not I'm not going to be uh, the fool that tries to tell you when the correction right. happens. <laughs> no, that's very wise and, and truthful, uh, truthful words you're passing on to our to our audience. But, you know, when I'm, you know, when I'm not here, you know, doing the TV show, you know, by career, I'm a career mortgage person. Uh, in a few weeks, I can't believe this, but I'll be in the mortgage business 39 years. And uh, we are enjoying the last three to six months, you know, mortgage rates that haven't been this low in decades, about three decades, rates in the twos. I mean, it's, Literally, if you go to somebody that's renting, a, which in my area, of course, it's worse in, in yours and Peter's area. I'm on the west coast of Florida. You're on the east coast. But here, you know, a nice apartment, two bedroom, two bath, is 1500 a month. People are literally buying a $300,000 house for less than 1500 a month. And if you're renting an executive house for 2500 three grand a month, you literally can buy a half a million dollar house. Now, that is astounding for, for the mortgage industry, and it certainly helps the real estate industry. Most of the world doesn't realize it hurts everybody else. Um, it hurts investments. It hurts the stock market. It hurts the seniors that this show was created to help because they're getting little to no return on their annuities and money market and savings. You know, um, I'm not going to say I hope. Well, I am going to say it. I'd like to see a little correction. I think if rates went up just a little to help the other parts of the world, the mortgage business would still be great. People would still buy houses. But we got to start getting investors some sort of return on their investment, don't we? Because this is out of my wheelhouse. This is yeah, your- no. It, it's a great point um, because that was another thing I was going to say uh, to answer about kind of the forecast for this year, and and that is interest rates. Um, I'm not going to put again be the fool to try and predict where interest rates will be by the end of the year. But you're right. Um, barring the idea of negative rates here in the U.S., which um, you know for your for your viewers. Uh, that may not know, there, there have been negative interest rates over the past decade in uh, the European economy yes. primarily. So that's something that people have feared here in the United States. I don't think it's going to happen. There's no signs that it would um, or, or it would happen anytime soon. But I do think that the, the, the new fear over the next few years, I would say, could be a rise in interest rates due to a rise in, in inflation. Um, there's fears of inflation due to all the money printing during this pandemic. Yes. Um, and, and I would say this, I was not fearful 
uh, when the stimulus happened after the great financial crisis of 08 through 2010, because that stimulus was used to fill a hole that was um, dug by the financial industry with the mortgage collapses and all that. It was our industry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this, so this one might be different because the pandemic wasn't the same thing. You know, obviously we had a hole, but that was a health care issue that stopped the economy, not a financial issue. So there is a chance without getting in the weeds as to why that's different and, and right. taking your whole show up about, you know, being wonky and technical like that. Um, but there is a chance that we could see uh, inflation rise. And I say that over the next few years. I'm not trying to scare anyone no, in six months. Hmm. You know, mortgage rates will be at 10%. But I could see by the middle of this decade, rates being higher. Um, so that's a guesstimation I'd make. But what does that mean? Again, I'm not sure. You know, your world, the mortgage rate world is, is based off the 30-year uh, tre- treasury bond. Um, our world on the investor side is more looks at the 10-year treasury bond. Right. And if you look at the 10-year bond, it's moved from about what we call in the industry basis points, 80 basis points, but that's a smart way of just saying 0.8%, eight-tenths of a percent, um, to about 1.1, hovering 1.2 type of thing. And so that doesn't sound like a lot, but as a percentage, that's a nice jump. You know, that's a 35%, 40% jump. And so, but we're coming off, like you said, such historic lows that even that jump still puts the 10-year bond still at a historic low. Mm -hmm. Um, the last um, interest rate based sell off the market saw was in the fourth quarter of 2008, 18, sorry, 18, 2018, not 2008. Yeah. Um, so just uh, under two years ago. And um, that's when the 10 year bond just crept over uh, 3%. Mm-hmm. The S&P 500 reacted by dropping 20% over a few a span of a few weeks. So you're right, Michael, that a rise in rates would potentially cause a correction because it would cause um, those who manage large blocks of money, you know, the big, big institutions mm-hmm. that have hundreds of billions of dollars and, and everyone, I guess, to reposition portfolios in, in anticipation of getting invest, new investments with higher rates. No one wants to sit on existing investments exactly. that have lower rates than new issues. So, but I think one thing that I've, been trying to remind our clients about it is that corrections are not unhealthy and they're part of the market. That's right. So if you're going to be in this game, you need to understand that that happens and we need to be strategic in a, not only in anticipating um, corrections, but also trying to take advantage of them. That's right. So, so, um, so yeah, so definitely the interest rate market, I think, um, will be something very interesting to watch. And you're right, savers and retirees have been punished, unfortunately, really yes. over the last 12 years um, because safe investments haven't yielded much at all. And Peter, on your end, you know, you've pointed out several times these record low interest rates is not good at all for insurance companies you know, that are taking your premiums. Um, I've always said this, it's legalized gambling. Um, you know, they're taking odds. Um, but they have no great place to invest it, which has got to make premiums go up. Well, it's interesting that you said that because no one feels bad for the insurance companies. However, they are going through the what I call the perfect storm, which is, you know, on when it comes to long term care, you know, the actuaries who I affectionately refer to as high priced guessers, um, they they looked at the market and said, OK, this 
certain percentage of people are going to die. Well, that didn't happen for the most part. People, as you said earlier, when you opened the show, are living much longer than we ever expected. So people are living into their 90s and beyond. Um, so that's one thing that they can't get rid of that client because the policies are all guaranteed renewable. Uh, they can't individually raise their rates because they have to request a rate increase from the insurance industry, mm-hmm. excuse me, from the regulators in the, in the particular state where those policies were sold. And that has become easier, but still you can't take someone like with you do with auto or home and homeowners and just select them out for a cancellation or a rate increase. Exactly. So and then on top of it, the money that's coming in, as you say, what are they doing with that money? Um, over a long sustained period of time, like we're talking about, Wutunde was just referring to, a 10 or 12 year period of time, that's totally devastating yes. uh, to, to a, an institution, uh, an institutional investor. So you've got a, you've got a tough situation going on uh, and that's why the traditional long-term care insurance industry has really kind of dried. I wouldn't use the word dried up, but certainly shrunk down significantly over this last decade in terms of their offerings. There are still product uh, being made available in the market, yep. but uh, not anywhere as near as robust as it was 15, 20 years ago. Right. So mm-hmm. it, it, it does have a dark side to it. Um, yep. And yes, there are some people that are very happy. I'm looking for the day when a mortgage company will actually offer me a mortgage that they'll pay me to take, as opposed to me paying even one or two percent. That's called that's called a reverse mortgage. We'll talk about it after the show. That's happening, but in any case, uh, it is kind of a mixed bag, uh, and it's very hard uh, looking down the road to predict where we're going uh, with a number of different sides to the economy and to uh, to deal with this coronavirus. Um, it could go in any direction. So it's yeah. very hard to predict. Well, Tunde, you know, there's no doubt about it. We've tried very hard not to be, I'll use quotation marks, political on this show. Um, and, and I don't do that because, uh, you know, I'm ashamed of my standing or my position or, or afraid of an argument. Um, although I, I have a feeling the four of us would agree on a lot more than we would disagree. But I do that because I want to build a TV show. And when you give a definite Democratic or Republican or something opinion, you have to piss off half your audience. That's just life. Uh, So we try not to do that. Um, But with this new regime, I I agree with you. I think we're going to see uh, a lot of green movement, a lot of technology movement. Um, I am so happy um, to see technology heading up again to the space. I'm a Star Trek uh, uh, total nerd. Um, Where's my moon base? Where's my rocket packs that I was promised in the 1970s? Where are they? So I'm very excited uh, that the Biden administration has been very vocal uh, about Space Force and wanting to get up there because that's where the answers are. Um, But what else can we see? Um, You brought up earlier uh, a possible um, tax hike, or at least a suggestion from the incoming um, regime of raising short-term ca- or sh- or capital gains. And uh, you go ahead and if you would expound on that, because that really scares me, to be honest with you. Yeah, no. So there's um, a great um, reference to Star Trek. I'm a Star Wars guy, so I'll be looking for my lightsaber. That's my second favorite. You know, when, uh, when 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 we figure this space mm-hmm. stuff out. But, um, but no, it's a, it's a good question. So 
obviously, and, and forget about politics, you know, I think everyone takes that a little too serious these days. Um, that's for sure. You know, we're, we're all Americans, right? And that's the first, yes. uh, you know, political tribe I ascribe to. So the bottom line is, though, we recognize that, you know, traditionally, in, 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 as I say, my whole life, and I'd say the last few generations, let's say since the 1960s, generally Republicans have been seen as the, um, the smaller government, you know, you figure it out on your own more type of party. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and we, we, you know, kind of um, uh, will, will want to cut taxes and, 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 and not see the government as, as doing uh, you know, big a transfer of, of wealth to, to, to others um, that may be in, in need or, or whatever. And Democrats are more of, you know, they, they feel that the government has a social responsibility more so than Republicans do. And that would lead to a larger government spending. However, um, in fairness to both parties, um, you know, they both run up deficits and, you know, both of them end up acting very similar when you really look at it. Yes. Um, it's the rhetoric, which is different. So um, I'll leave it at that. But um, so that's why not much will change with this regime from the, you know, the new regime versus the current, because nothing changed since not too much at that level has changed really since the Obama administration. That's correct. Um, even Trump's tax cut, uh, for example, was not way out of the norm of what a Republican would have done. And what what we can assume and what we're getting at in this conversation is Biden, as a Democrat, is going to now put his spin on it and claw some of those um, 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 tax benefits back. Mm -hmm. um, and we also have uh, now close to 30 trillion in um, a, a fiscal deficit, and we went from um, 516 billion uh, in January of 2017 as a budget deficit, and we're back to 1.4 trillion. So, you know, what does all that mean? You know, we can all interpret it different ways, but the bottom line is, is that there is going to be most likely tax increases, A, because of the regime, B, most likely because the need to start filling some of, you know, taking care of some of these deficits. That's right. So you're right. What, where, does, where has that already shown itself? And that's why I don't freak out too much when I read these things right now, because remember, this all has to go through legislation, mm -hmm. um, taxes. Uh, are law and, and they are something that can't be uh, done through uh, executive order. It has right. to be passed by the Congress, ratified by the Senate, then signed by the president. So there's going to be a lot of negotiation to everything that we're talking about today. And, you know, I kind of treat tax legislation like an NBA season. You know, you can sit there and watch during the season, but you're not going to really get much if you show up around the second or third round on the playoffs, the playoffs. then then you then you kind of know what what the end game, the who's going to be in the finals, and maybe who, you know, it gets a little exciting then. So, uh, but certain things we've heard, like you mentioned, um, an increase, uh, proposed increase in capital gains tax for those making over a million dollars, and it it may be as high as double the current capital gains rate. So mm -hmm. the current capital gains rate is twenty percent flat long term capital gains rate. Uh, so that's holding any uh, capital over 365 days and then selling it would, would trigger a long-term capital gains rate. But then if you make over a certain amount of income per year, you're also taxed a little bit more for some of the Affordable Care Act taxes and, and other things, Medicare taxes. So it could be as high as 23.8% right. if you're in a certain income bracket. So if that doubles, you'd be looking at around 44, 45% um, 
let me see if I know, 46%, 46%. Um, uh, in, in capital gains rate for those that make over a million dollars. And see, that's where folks like Pete and I, like the minute I read that, I just got my creative hat on and started thinking, okay, so for our higher net worth clients, we're just going to have to look at tax shelters and other vehicles that might make sense for them if this legislation right. were to stay this way and pass. Now, I tend to think that, you know, we still have, even though the Democrats will take control of the Congress and the, the White House, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's still a lot of Republicans there, too. So yes. I feel like the negotiation and not all Democrats might be on board with this aggressive tax plan either. So that's, again, why I'm not I don't get too concerned this early in the game when I read these things. Mm-hmm. Um, another example, which is something that would concern me if it was into law, but it doesn't yet, it would be, um, from what I read, it's pretty aggressive, fully strip away the 1031 exchange rules, um, like 100%. Yeah, that's so, spooky. Uh, I was already unhappy under the 2017 legislation when they stripped it away for everything except real estate. Um, you know, let's not get into uh, big real estate developers lobbying yes. uh, the White House. But <laughs> but the idea is that um, 1031 exchange, for those who may not be fami- familiar, is where you can take an asset. Let's say you buy something at 100000 10 years later, it's at a million. You can exchange that asset for what they call a like-kind asset. And as long as you do it within a certain time period, you're not taxed on that exchange. And there's a there's a bad joke in our industry that we call swap till you drop, that this is one of the few ways that you could keep trading assets and buying and selling things your whole life and, and never, never pay, pay taxes. taxes. Mm-hmm. And so and then your 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 heirs would get what's called a step up in basis at your death, um, which means that. You know, I'll kill myself. I won't kill you guys. Let's say I died tomorrow. Um, let me kill myself yesterday. I mean, that way it can't happen. So yeah, let's say I died yesterday on January 17th. <laughs> um, then the, the, the cost basis for my children and my wife, for example, would be um, the, the value of that asset on the 17th of January. So if they sold it today or tomorrow, technically they'd have no taxes because right. it wouldn't have grown soon after my death. Um, so the 1031 has been a, a, a widely used yes, vehicle for wealth transfer and just for tax avoidance, but in a way that promotes economic stimulation of money. And that's the one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is the beautiful thing about the United States tax code is it creates a lot of economic activity as well. Mm -hmm. Things like depreciation, all that. So uh, what I'm getting at is the 2017 legislation saw um, the IRS do away with the ability to use the 1031 concept on other assets outside of real estate because you used to be able to do it with art for example with things like cattle um that was a uh, you know if you're a rancher with fifty thousand cattle you can swap you know for other cattle or livestock you know so so there was a lot uh, a lot of industries i should say that benefited from the 1031 exchange yeah. and now it's just real estate well the biden administration is considering doing away with that altogether so again that could be something that really affects the flow of money um, and another I read, which was um, the ability to do things like accelerated depreciation in certain ways. Um, again, getting a little bit technical, but right. that creates um, incentives for businesses to spend capital for investment because they may say, OK, we can buy a fleet of trucks or I can go buy you know new f- boats for a fishing charter company. But if I can ap- depreciate them down to zero in one year, 
that offsets taxes from the income I'm making. That's right. And it incentivizes a business owner to do that. But if you don't get the depreciation, you're not going to go spend the capital. That's right. So, they, you know, there is um, some risk in being very aggressive that way in the tax code. Um, but, you know, I'm not the president and I'm not in Congress. So I, have to I just got to sit question. back and wait and see. Yeah, I have to ask a question because um, yeah. I, I, I always do my own disclosures. You know, I'll, I'll put my knowledge about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and FHA and specifically reverse mortgages against anyone in the country. But I am not a certified financial planner. I am not even a financial planner. I understood everything you just said. I think most of the audience did. What is the advantage? I'm trying to picture in my mind what is the Biden administration's thoughts behind this. By doing that, it appears, If I, correct me if I'm wrong, it'll have a short-term positive advantage because that money will be taxable. Yeah. Long-term, it will not help us, but they're trying to get more money into the economy to help with the deficit, or am I off base here? What's the, I'm not why sure. Would they do I mean, that? Again, I'm not, I'm not in those rooms uh, making those decisions, but I would assume it's, you know, to like you're saying, plug the hole with the deficit. I also think there's some big infrastructure spending and other spending they probably have planned. Which we um, need, so let's think, face it. Sorry? I said, which we need. I mean, every yeah, and president. I, and I think, you know, look, there's also a philosophical reality, right, that, um, that I think that um, a lot of people – you know, who, who, who supported the Biden administration and all that feel that, you know, those at the top, that the proverbial 1% have gotten away with a lot of, um, you know, uh, loopholes and, and a lot of help from, um, you know, the tax code to, to, to maintain their wealth and increase it. There's no doubt. While everyone else kind of has not had that opportunity. So, um, you know, and again, that's why it's not about whether I agree or disagree. I, that's why I don't take the politics that serious about it. It's more, okay, I look at this information and say, okay, how am I going to navigate this reality? If this is the new regime and how it's going to be, let's find the loopholes because they're always there. All, yep. um, you know, in the end, uh, corporations and wealthy lobby Congress. So there are going to be loopholes that remain. And let's just see what they are and how, how we can navigate them and advise our clients. Um, to, to best take advantage of them. So that's, yeah, so I, I, I can't really speak to motivation, right. but I think that part of it is the honest difference between the two parties and their philosophies, you know, that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that the, the Democrats probably feel they're going to make up for, um, you know, what the Republicans may have gotten away with from a, from a tax perspective. Right. Uh, the other one that I don't think matters as much to the audience um, unless they're running C corporations that net over 10 million a year um, is that there's most likely Biden has proposed increasing corporate tax rates. Mm -hmm. um, so that could have a somewhat short term effect on the stock market as well if the market reacts yes. neg negatively to that. But the rate he's talking about going back to or going up to is 28 percent, which would still be much lower than the 35 percent that the C corp rate was prior to the That's 2017 right. legislation. Mm -hmm. So if the Biden administration were to go back, you know, a little bit on corporate taxes, I, I don't think it would be that detrimental to corporations. Yeah. I'm sure they, they, they would negotiate through lobbying their own kind of sweet spots, you know, in, in return for letting this happen in a sense. Um, but then also it would still be a, a better tax rate than they enjoyed you know, up until 2017. Exactly. So, um, well, you we said, I'm sorry, you said something earlier that people do not understand. Um, 
in every set of market circumstances, people are making money. Um, yeah. No matter what the changes, there's always one party or the other, depending on who makes the changes, with that rhetoric, oh, my God, they're destroying America. And it's, it's never been true. It's never proved I out. Um, I was in business when Jimmy Carter was president. And um, rates, fixed rates were 18% in the state of Florida. Um, now, I had to work hard, harder than I'm certainly working today. But I was younger, so I could do that. But we made money. And people bought houses. And not people bought houses with the thought of, oh, my God, my rates are so high. But inflation was so high that people were buying a house for 200000 and a year later selling it for two fifty. dollars um, People always make money during a Democratic administration and a Republican administration. They just have to have the right advisor guiding them and not react, quite frankly, to what they see on TV, which is as scripted. You know, as as the WWE you know wrestling show, they had well, and, except and, for, and social media, everybody uh, stay off that. Yeah, social media, stay off of social media, <laughs> stay off TV. Well, except for We Beam TV, we should be the only station left in America. Um, Peter, true. go ahead. I want you to have some input on this. Well, well, I'm more I'm more interested in being a fly on the wall in this show, but but um, I'm, I do have a, a couple of. Uh, Questions for Tunde uh, before now that we're approaching the last quarter of uh, of the show's time. I wanted him to have enough time to also talk about his other um, hat, which is really more of an estate planning expert and not just a financial planning and, and be able to share with us his recent unfortunate experience with a friend um, uh, that didn't have the opportunity to do proper estate planning and and how. I don't know if I should prop if this is proper or not about using the term the masses, but if we get away from the you know the the affluent and we talk about most of America, you know, let's say the bottom seventy five percent of America, mm -hmm. uh, there's still a need to do proper estate planning, and I wanted Tunde to touch on that. If we have time, and if he feels like it, I'm just going to throw another one at him now, and he can decide. I know he didn't expect this, but. As a black man in America who happens to also be Jewish, I'd be curious to hear from him a, a couple of sentences about how he's feeling about what took place in Georgia recently and, and also what's taking place in the federal government. And if, if he feels like even uh, talking about that. But let's just talk about uh, basic estate planning, if we can, uh, Tunde. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on that, on that, um, on the more personal stuff. Uh, why don't we stop at five minutes and we can have a conversation there. Um, I appreciate that, Pete. But on estate planning, um, yeah, very important to us. I mean, one reason why we named the firm Axial Family Advisors is specifically um, because we believe that if we're not helping someone with their whole family picture and also downline, you know, meaning the next generations, then what are we really doing? You know, if, if, if I sit there and I sit with a, a husband and wife and they have a family, um, and I'm trying to help them, you know, grow their wealth and, 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 and kind of talk about goals and, and, you know, create a family mission statement, for example, all that kind of stuff. Then, you know, if, if, if I don't advise them on how that after they're gone to teach their children, you know, how to fish, you know, not just feeding them fish and how to teach the grandchildren and, and what a dynasty trust is and all that, then I kind of realize what am I really doing here? And a lot of that just like we started with, how did I get in this business through some personal 
experiences. Um, estate planning uh, is a very personal thing for me as well. Um, I had some, some, some tough experiences early in my career as a young kid in my early 20s where um, I had meetings with people and got a call that they were, you know, that they had passed away, you know, two days later after I met with them. And I was still a young kid full of piss and vinegar. So death was still so foreign, you know, as far as far away from my mindset. And um, helping these families at that young age early in this industry really made an impact on me um, after the death. And and uh, to uh, Pete's point, I recently had my most recent um, personal story was a good friend of mine about six weeks ago. Um, seems like he died of a massive heart attack in his office, um, 54 years old, left a wife, two kids, and unfortunately, um, you know, was a business owner that was kind of typical small business American guy, you know, just living credit card to credit card type of thing. And finally, finally hit his big number. He, he had a um, secured a $5 million contract uh, with a county here in Florida, uh, which was going to have margins of somewhere between 30 and 40% over three years. Oh, wow. And he was finally going to make, you know, some real money. And um, unfortunately, he passed away. And one of the most devastating conversations for me was um, a couple of days later, his wife crying on the phone that he had no will, no life insurance, no nothing. And so, um, and she's trying to figure out how she's, you know, going to pick up these pieces. And so um, I took that very personal and feel very guilty because he, we were very close friends and I'm not a pushy person. So I, I, I tend to like, you know, if I don't know someone and they get referred to me, I'll call them all day and harass them until they tell me to F off. But with my friends, I never want a relationship thinking that I'm only in it to try and sell them something. So I usually don't, you know, um, I'm usually not that aggressive with my good friends because I don't want them. You know, I, I, I treat people how I want to be treated. And I, I don't want a friend of mine always breathe them down my neck about their business. So I'll usually check on a friend and say, are you OK? And if they tell me, yeah, I'll leave them alone. Right. And so um you know, I've learned my lesson. I need to be more aggressive than that with, with the people I care about as well. So, but it was another wake-up call that, again, how important estate planning is. So, you know, to Pete's point, things like a power of attorney, a healthcare directive, you know, I tell people that's for when you're not even dead. So, uh, and we're in this era of COVID. And, and so, you know, someone could be in an ICU bed alive but, you know, someone, you know, they need someone to maybe write checks on their behalf, right. you know, paying a mortgage or paying a bill. So the, the powers of attorney health care are part of the living will package, which is part of the overall estate planning process. That's very important. Um, the will is for the probate court to tell you who gets what. And I think, you know, going back to politics, one of the things that I've been very, um, you know, just enlightened with, let's let's use that term. Uh, since the election, since November 3rd, has been watching our whole legal and political system in, in process. So this isn't about whether someone agrees or not with the election or if they like Trump or Biden. My, my comment is simply, I've been so patriotically proud to be an American watching how the court system works, watching how the Senate debates things and all that. And, you know, watching the Electoral College count on live stream, you know, all these things that prior to this moment seemed very boring and that we never paid attention to. Mm -hmm. The reason I bring all this up is that the strength of this country's court system is, is where I'm going with from an estate planning standpoint. You know, the, the probate court is state by state, not federal. So here in Florida, we have the, pro, the Florida probate court system. 
The Florida probate court can charge up to 3% for assets coming through its system. So if you have a million dollars, you know, in your, in your estate, your probatable estate, up to 30,000 can be charged by the court. And I've explained to clients, that's no different than divorce court or traffic court. That's it's right. another revenue stream for the state and that's their right to do that. So one way to avoid probate would be having a revocable trust. So people don't, you know, sometimes people feel like they have to be, you know, Jeff Bezos or, or, or Bill Gates type of wealth to have a trust. But again, if you have a single family home, maybe a vacation home, you have some assets, you know, titled in your name, just for that, saving your family, the 3%, the headache with going to court, maybe the public records that will be um, uh, opened up because the probate court is public. People can go and see you know, what's going through there. So those are all reasons why some people get a trust more than just a will. So those are all things, um, you know, I guess I'll stop and let you ask questions, Michael, but those are all reasons that uh, estate planning is very important and something that should be considered, to Peter's point, by everybody, not just the perceived wealthy. Yeah, I think that's a, a perception um, in this country uh, for many, many, many decades, you know, that, that the rich need to plan. I'm a normal family guy. I've got a little in the 401k, got a lot of equity in my house. I don't need a financial planner. Uh, but the truth is, in today's complicated tax codes um, and also volatile economy, that person does need a financial planner. Um, now, of course, that brings up another, another conundrum, because uh, I do business with a lot of financial planners who refer me reverse mortgages. There are a lot of financial planners out there that don't want to speak to you, you know, unless you have a net worth of a million dollars or $2 million. I don't begrudge that, um, but that's maybe 1% of the world or 1% yeah. of the country. Um, how do we get that other 99% to dial a number? And the truth of the matter is, it's a hard conversation. There's going to be times where you might have to say to somebody, I really can't help you. You have nothing in savings. You're living paycheck to paycheck. Um, I've asked you if you want to start a 401k or an IRA. You have said no. Uh, you have, you're upside down in your house. You know, that's not the financial planner's fault. Um, it's nobody's fault. But um, there are people out there that don't need a financial planner. But more of them do than think so. How do we get that message across? It's like what I'm always saying to Peter and, and Bill Comfort and Mark Goldberg. How do we tell the average person they really do need long-term care insurance when it's not even in their frame of thought? <laughs> that, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think like the rest of, like you said, about society, right? There's, there's people that will be responsible and doing certain things and taking an initiative um, to, to start looking at solving problems in a way that they're being proactive. And part of that might be finding a financial planner or at least learning about something on their own and really getting um, you know, a handle on information themselves. Because you know, one great thing that I think we have in today's world that maybe we didn't have obviously prior to 10, 15 years ago is that the, the internet can be uh, dangerous, but it can also be very great as well. Um, so you know, don't take it from me. If someone doesn't want to deal with someone like me, I mean, they can go learn about estate planning on their own online. Uh, you know, just go to Wikipedia or Google. So dangerous, um, though. You could, yeah, and and you could go to LegalZoom and other other areas to learn these things. At least get the basic protections. But what I would say is, um, you know, I'm a big fan of relationships. So it, 
it would be good to vet people like myself and Peter and you, you know, these, these, these professionals that can help you in these different areas. And I think it's about having a team, um, you know, doesn't have to be a big team, but you can have an accountant, a financial planner, an insurance yes. person, that kind of thing. Um, also, I always tell people, you know, check out, you vet people, um, similar how you might vet other professionals. So, you know, people in our world, if you refer to someone like us. So in my world, and I appreciate you sharing the licenses uh, at the beginning, Michael, because anyone with a Series 7, Series 6, Series whatever, Series 3, Series 24, all these different um, licenses, you can look us up on FINRA.org, mm-hmm. which is F-I-N-R-A.org. That has all of our history um, in terms of if we've been reprimanded, if we've ever filed bankruptcy or had a financial compromise, all these things by law have to be disclosed. Mm-hmm. So if someone is holding themselves out as a financial professional and they're not, you can't find them on FINRA, um, it doesn't mean that they're crooks. Um, there are uh, instances where you can give financial advice legally without being licensed like us, but that's rare. Mm-hmm. And that has its own caveats. Yes. Um, so if someone's not on there, at least it should give you pause and ask him, okay, well, you're telling me you're a financial professional, but I don't see you on yeah. here. Who regulates Tell me why. At least, at least hear their explanation. Um, and if you see them on there and there are things that look like compromises, um, Run. Then, then you need to ask, you know, what did explain this to me? So those are simple ways that I think the public can be uh, a little bit more informed and armed, and I welcome anyone to go look at mine. And... Um, and so, so that's one thing, but, but yeah, I think that, um, you know, the, the problem is here's, here's the way I put it. The public has a right to be suspicious because a lot of people in my shoes have given the public a reason to be suspicious. That's a lot exactly. of people have sold products in, you know, incorrectly. Let me just put it that way. Um, sometimes maliciously, unfortunately, uh, we're here in Florida, so we know that was, you know, Scott Rothstein, Bernie Madoff, all those names. Mm-hmm. They took advantage of the higher net worth crowd, but there's thousands of insurance agents and others that rip people off with, you know, things like annuities and, and other products that unfortunately they didn't disclose things like surrender penalties or other things. And the public just got a bad taste in their mouth for people like us in in, in the last couple decades. So. I think that the public has a right, and, and I understand why there's a lot of distrust, but what I often tell people is you got to find someone and at least find someone you can trust. Yes. And I would say the worst type of people I've ever met, um, and that sounds terrible, I didn't mean it to come out like that, but right. I would say the worst mindset, let me put it that way, from a consumer is the ones who, and I've, I just dealt with someone like this a few weeks ago, they're, they're the type that call you and they, and they want to get all this information, but they don't trust anyone. Yeah. So, so they, they call five different financial advisors and ask them about the same question. And then they're trying to play everyone off each other. And then they read Tony Robbins book about money or something. And then they're making all these assumptions off of things they're reading in these different places. Yeah. But what they don't do is they don't stand still to meet with someone that's in my shoes or Peter's shoes that's right. and really just get and you know, figure out what's good for them. You see yeah. what I'm saying? So Absolutely. I would say to the audience that, you know, trying to shop for information is just as dangerous sometimes as not having any. Exactly. Because then you're a deer in the headlights and you're just not going to do anything. So it's still worth interviewing people yes. and finding someone that you're going to be comfortable with. And I would say measure the person in my shoes off the patience they have with you. That's mm-hmm. probably a very good barometer. Exactly. Because 
that's the one thing to your point, Michael. I never, I never make someone feel guilty for interviewing me or asking a bunch of questions because the way I look at it is, is their money. They have a right to vet me, right. just like I want to vet someone who's 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 going to be dealing with my money. All you right. know, if I were to hire a new accountant or a new attorney to give me advice, I'm going to vet them. So, so you know, that's the way I would say to your audience, you know. Um, uh, just just don't be afraid to ask people like me a lot of questions. <laughs> All right, we got way. 90 seconds left. We wanted to do this at the five-minute mark. Peter yeah. did ask a personal question. I don't know if it can be answered in a minute and 22 seconds, um, but we're at a weird time, um, and we can go over that minute. The television show will stop, but we're also a podcast on many different platforms, and when this goes to YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook, it will have the full episode. Yeah. Um, and if you care to answer that, you don't have to worry about the minute. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, if I remember correctly, you may need to repeat it. It was about just being, um, black, Jewish, American, um, and whatever else we can throw into that mix of, and, and stir it up. Right. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> and what I think about the last few weeks, last few, whatever. Right. Um, so I would say this, um, you know, especially as being a, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so I, I am very, I take Washington very personal for me. Um, my mom worked uh, for the U.S. government for many years while I was a kid, so I used to take the train, you know, the metro after school, especially elementary school, um, downtown and go, you know, kind of hang out at her office while she was finishing work. Um, and, and her office was about a block away from, the Capitol building right near the mall, you know, with this, with the Smithsonian museums and all that. So I grew up, you know, going to all those museums, going to the monuments, going to the Capitol and to see, you know, just the disrespect to that building um, really hurt me just personally as an American. Um, and it was, and a, a, you know, so, um, and I think, you know, I probably share that sentiment with a lot of Americans. Absolutely. Um, I don't know where this goes. Um, let, I, I put it this way. I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I, I feel like hopefully um, this could be a shared painful experience by the country, just like the Great Depression was or World War II was um, in a way that we can somehow come together from this. Um, but I recognize that Vietnam and the, and the civil rights era was also, a, you know, the 60s was a shared experience for America. And we didn't come together after that one, you know, so this could go either way. Um, I think it's becoming more obvious as uh, it hasn't even been two weeks now since that insurrection. But I think from what I'm seeing on the news, it's becoming more obvious that um, a lot of Americans, I think more so than I understood, um, uh, believed a lot of things that were untrue um, about the election and all that. And... Um, really took, I guess, um, storming the Capitol as a serious way to deal with it. Um, I, I don't know what the end game. Uh, yeah, and what I guess was the maybe, end game? Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm naive to the fact that some people really did think that they could install, you know, a dictator or a king in this country. Um, and, and I guess that's what I'm thinking. Like, I guess I'm so technical. I'm thinking like, okay, so what do people really think that they were going to storm the government and then do what like after yeah. that and um you know everybody like we was talked gonna about go with, okay you're right we changed our mind what yeah. was the end like you said it was it was no and, and i'm just thinking because like with my financial knowledge i'm thinking okay so the you know the u.s treasury 
uh, you know, the Federal Reserve just 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 issued, you know, uh, six, seven trillion dollars worth of treasury bonds, uh, you know, in the past 12 months dealing with the COVID pandemic. Like I'm thinking, who was going to be the person? Was it the guy with the horns and the and the mm -hmm. bearskin thing that was going to go sit in the office of the treasury and deal yeah. with, you know, making sure that that all worked out well? So that's what I mean is 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 a bit of a ham-fisted coup in a sense um, that we're starting to see because as much as I don't like using that term, um, what I'm learning from just the information is that this was actually planned and um, and um, in a certain way. And we saw the, the people with the zip ties and the guys chanting that they wanted to hang the vice president. So clearly, you know, this wasn't just a spontaneous thing that got out of hand. People mm -hmm. came in there with certain game plans. So, you know, I don't know what this yeah. where we go from it's, here, um, but yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You know, I, I just I just it's just interesting. And um, I think all the analogies I've heard about, um, you know, these were other types of folks storming the Capitol, that the response might have been different. I can believe that. Um, had this been, you know, people with, uh, you know, Arab names, uh, you know, chattering online on social media about attacking a U.S. government building, I think it would have been reacted to differently. The army would uh, have been there. So, yeah. so, yeah, so I just think that, um, you know, this is a moment, unfortunately, where we can um, take a look and say, okay, everybody can be radicalized. Yes. I think this is an example similar to like what we saw with ISIS or Al-Qaeda over the last 20 years. And we mm -hmm. used to say, you know, what's wrong with them? They're getting radicalized online. You know, I think now we can look at the chickens coming home to roost. And this is happening to our own American fellow Americans that they're believing things online um, that otherwise, you know, they may not have even believed a couple of years ago. And um you know, I guess we just need to have a way of dealing with it as a country, and we haven't figured that out yet. So, yep, you know. I think that's a great answer. I think you're right. I, I hope that the country is going to look at this as a, a, a point to come together. Um, you know, I, I, I just think it was one of the, you know, second to nine one one. I think that yeah. was the darkest day of my sixty two years of being on this planet. Um, you know, I, I, we have to. Be cognizant of each other's feelings. I think it's important. I'm going to say it, you know, even though I'm very happy that there was a change in regime. Um, I don't want to get into that too much. But I also want everyone to understand that the 5,000 misfits that were there that day in D.C. don't necessarily represent the 70 million plus that voted for Donald Trump. Not defending it in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I just, I don't like it when anybody, anybody, all Democrats are like this. All Republicans are like this. All Jews are like this. You know, like they say in Star Wars, only a Sith deals in absolutes. Um, <laughs> and I, I just, I can't take that. All. When you start the sentence with all, you know, a lot of race cars are red, but there are other red things too. Um, I don't like that all thing. And to use these 5,000, for lack of better terms, misfits as a representation of America, I just hope that us at home don't adopt that and that our friends abroad don't adopt that 0.000007% of this country as a representative uh, or, or representative of how great this country is on both sides of the aisle. 
Um, yeah, no, I agree with you. And, um, you know, I, maybe this will be a time where people can start, um, um, you know, looking at that more serious, not blanketing the other side. Because yeah. you're right, it's, it's, it happened in the summer with, you know, I would say uh, the more fringe on the Democratic side with things like defund the police and all that. And that was ascribed to every single Democrat. And you're 100% right. Um, the 70 million plus that voted for Trump, you know, aren't all supportive of storming their own government, you oh know, God. Uh, yeah. capital. So, um, but I think, you know, that's where I, I feel like we all have responsibilities too as, as individuals. I mean, you know, a lot of people choose to peddle in um, social media and internet and things that only represent one's view and, and, and cast the other side as a total enemy. And I think you're right about your comment about 9-11. You know, I told my kids that um, that Wednesday night on the 6th, and I, I hadn't, you know, had them watch, you know, when the Senate reconvened to finish um, certifying the election, because I just told them this is historic. And when you're my age, they're going to be talking about this. That's right. And even to me, more historic than 9-11, more so because this came from within our country. That's right. 9-11 um, was a historic tragedy, but we were still attacked from an outside force. Mm -hmm. um, this was all us doing it to each other. And, you know, my concern is less about Donald Trump because... I think, um, you know, the bad joke I heard is it's hard to break up with a narcissist. Um, and so I think that's really what we saw, right? He just, mm -hmm. you know, his demeanor post-election from losing, you know, ginned up all this stuff. But, and, you know, he'll be gone and that'll be life, just like yeah. every president. And, and that's where I feel like, you know, my patriotic uh, fervor was heightened during this time because yes. I thought, what a beautiful system these founders created. That's right. Um, it's messy. On purpose, um, I would have liked. I, I would love for this country to be a lot smoother, but the messiness um, actually proved to me that it would be. It's much harder to create a dictatorship in this country than another. Right. Maybe because maybe in other systems, uh, from everything from manipulating the post office prior to the election to now trying to you know strong arm the the the, the Secretary of State of Georgia after the election, mm -hmm. um, that might have worked in other. Uh, in oh, other yeah. societies. But I remember um, uh, reading an interview from the um, Secretary of State of Georgia, and he said that when Senator Lindsey Graham called him to harass him to try and get him to f overturn certain things and all that, he pushed back on him saying, um, you know, I can't do that because I don't have the constitutional authority in my state. And my state has, um, we have 200 counties or maybe i'm i don't know how many counties in Georgia. Yeah. i thought he said 200 seems like a lot and he says each county has its own voting system and i can't overturn what they chose so what it what it, it taught me a lot this last couple months yeah. of really that this is a great system and it held up after being attacked from that's within right. and that's fascinating you know and and it made me feel very good as an american like wow yeah. This is this now has been the most watched election we've ever had. That's right. Um, they did hand recounts twice in Georgia. Um, you know, they did all these other recounts. Then you had um, all, you know, so it's just without getting into all that, you know, yeah. it's just fascinating that this it is worked. Great. And, you know, it's, it's interesting too getting back now on, on the kind of cultural side of it, because it's interesting that, you know, 
it was the same kind of political attack on certain communities in this country. You know, mm -hmm. it was Milwaukee and Wisconsin was the, the, the center of attention. Philadelphia, out of all the cities in Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania, DeKalb County, where Atlanta is, out of Georgia. Um, you know, so those are the type of things that, you know, when I look at it coming from my lens, I think, wow, I wonder what type of people occupy those cities, you know, Detroit, mm -hmm. out of the whole state of Michigan. Right. And so, again, that's where it, it just is interesting that it's the same old fault lines that we see from a cultural angle where it's like, let's 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 somehow make it that there were shenanigans in these parts of town, but not and the, nowhere yeah. else. And yeah. so and and, you know, that's kind of where it's just it's just interesting that. Um, yeah, that it happens this way. And, and, and so. My real disappointment is, though, not with Donald Trump, because I expect him to act this way, um, just watching his behavior for the last four or five years. Um, and so that didn't surprise me. It was the people that know better, the senators and the That's Congress right. people that are in the government. They have every ability to call the FBI director. You know, if you're a senator in the United States, especially someone of standing that's been there for a while, you know, you can call the CIA director, the FBI director, the NSA director. They're going to pick up the phone. You can request conversations with these people if you really had a, a real thought and an issue that there was something going on. But um, I give to both parties. So I was getting I've been getting the emails from, you know, the, the, the senatorial campaigns of people, um, you know, the emails from the president and his campaign and, you know, the amount of fear mongering that they were doing, that's why I wasn't surprised what happened on the sixth happened. Right. I, I didn't I didn't predict it, so I'm not trying to say I knew right, it was no, gonna happen. But, but when it did happen, surprised. I thought, well, this is the natural result of when you when you gin people up to the point where they feel that their political opponent in their own country is as dangerous as a foreign adversary. Right. And you know, and that's to me the interesting thing about the psychology we've seen that Joe Biden, in the end, was vice president of the United States just four years ago, literally. Um, you know, today, four years ago, he was still vice president. Mm -hmm. And somehow enough Americans in four years got manipulated and radicalized online to the point where they felt that if he becomes president, that it's going to destroy America. And that, to me, is just fascinating. And I think it's going to be a lot longer. It's going to take than we, I think, anticipate or hope to deal with this. I think that this is here to stay for a long time. I agree with you. And unfortunately, I think what we're going to get back to is the, the, the folks like the Timothy McVeighs of the world, they're emboldened now. And I think we're going to have our own version of the Irish Republican Army or Hamas here in the United States. We're just going to have this insurgency group that um, is going to want to attack the government. And I think because of our constitution and freedom of speech and other things that I'm, I'm glad that we enjoy here. Um, it's going to be an interesting journey for us to deal with yes, it, it more so than other countries. So we'll see how it plays out. Yep. I think um, what we could probably expect is more incidents like the gentleman who blew up that truck in Nashville on Christmas Day. Right. Um, and, and fortunately for him, maybe he didn't want to hurt too many people, which is, you know, from my understanding, he had a megaphone saying, yeah, I've got a bomb here, get, get away, away yeah. for 15 minutes. Yeah. We may not be as fortunate for the next, you know, right. set of events. This whole idea, and it obviously started 
way before I was old enough to to watch the news, so it's been around forever, of loyalty to the party rather than loyalty to the people. I don't know when it started, and one day when I have time, maybe one of my children who are more intelligent than me can research that for me. But this idea that politicians on both sides, by the way, are loyal to the party rather than loyal to doing the right thing for the people that put them in office. Um, it, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to me. that first come, I mean, they say it. They say it on TV. We're going to be loyal to our party. No, yeah. be loyal to America. Um, but that's been going on since I, I'm a teenager I, and I'm getting up there in years. No, I, I know. And I think, look, I think it's part of human, you know, humanity and tribalism. I, I think, you know, what, I, what I've realized in this last few years is really our American experiment is the anomaly. Um, yes. You know, the way that we're seeing people behave now is a normal course of, your, uh, of world history. That is um, true. You wow. know, and, 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 you know, you think about it prior to World War II, probably every generation there were new lines drawn in Europe, you know, um, because there was just always wars. It used to be the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then the Prussian, you know, and you had mm-hmm. Prussia next to it, right? And then, you know, 30 years later, you got Germany and you got Hungary and Austria, or different yeah. countries. And then, you know, 30 years after that, Hitler's trying to make it back into the Germanic, you know, empire. And so, and then you've got, you know... ISIS trying to create a caliphate, you know, ten, in the last decade, because they felt that the lines were drawn after World War One, when the Ottoman Empire broke up, you know, that that was drawn unfairly, and they needed to take it back to the the, the Islamic states, and mm-hmm. and you have all these lines being drawn in the African colonies that are different to where the tribes had their lands, and then you have all that fighting there. So, you know, this idea of a constitution is really a guardrail against human emotion and human behavior. Um, and if, if anyone is still listening to us um, and they want to get a kick out of how great these founders were of our country, read George Washington's um, farewell address from 1896, I believe, um, or maybe, uh, no, sorry, 1796 mm-hmm. or 1800. I can't remember which year it was. But that's where he warns specifically against this. Um, and he warns against the idea of political parties. And, um, and, you know, remember, this was founded as a constitutional republic. So, um, you know, the idea of political parties um, is really about tribalism and is about having a side. And we've, we've treated our political parties now like sports teams. And, um, you know, whether they're doing the right thing or not, whether they cheat or not, I just want my team to win. That's right. And so, um, and a I great think analogy. It, yeah, and I think it reflects then back on the individual who is supporting that team or that party, right? Like, I'm, I love basketball, so, mm-hmm. and we live in South Florida, so let's just say I'm a Miami Heat fan generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I want the Heat to win, but I'm the type of personality that I wouldn't want to see them cheat to win, right? Like, right. I, 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 I don't want, you know, to know that my team won because everybody was on steroids and the refs were being right. paid on the table and all that, you know. That's not a fair win, but there's a lot of people that will accept winning like that. Absolutely. They'll, they'll pretend that, you know, oh, that didn't happen. We just won. We're that good. And I think that's where we're at now with politics where, you know, there's people that want politics to happen in a more fair way. They want to win. But if they, if they don't win an election because their ideas didn't rise to the top, they're okay with coming back 
That's right. You know, for a fight, you know, a fair fight the next time. And there's other people that are just, you know, the ends justify the means and I need to win at all costs. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was just reading something about that over the weekend that the Georgia state legislature now, even though the Democrats won the Senate race, um, the state legislature is still heavily Republican controlled. So as a response to what happened in this year's election, they're going to now um, put in all these rules that, you know, they're going to make it now um, uh, even more difficult for people to vote in Georgia. They're going to shorten the the, um, the 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 time before the election day that they can mm-hmm. you can have polls open. They're going to do what they did in that in Harris County in Texas, where you had one polling location in a in a county that had two million people. They're going to do more of that and take away drop boxes and polling locations and all that to make it harder for people. And then I even read something where they're even going to make it illegal for the people. Like if you have a long line where people are waiting eight hours, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's people that sit there with water bottles and snacks yeah, and they go on the line and, and they're going to make that illegal. So again, it's, 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 you know, that to me only happens if you don't want people participating. That's right. And if you don't want part people participating, then to me, okay, well, there's a reason for that because you feel that if if more people participate, that you're going to lose. And so that's what's more disappointing to me is that instead of saying, okay, well, why don't we just compete with with in the in the space of ideas and try and win all these people over, we'd rather just stop these people from having yeah. a chance to vote. And I think. Now getting in a little bit more granular on things like the racial side of things, I think that's where going back to when you look at the the cities within the states that have been accused of doing nefarious things, you know, it it it's again, if I gotta look, those cities usually have higher minority populations yes. than white populations. So it it again makes people like me feel like there's this constant meme out there that Oh, we'll see if it wasn't for the blacks or these others that are cheating. Everything would be great. Everything would be perfect. Yeah. And so, and again, and that's where sometimes, you know, a guy like me, I always felt like, you know, I'm the guy that, that, that the Republican party should be running towards for votes because mm-hmm. I, I do very well financially. I have on my own business. I don't like paying taxes. <laughs> I don't like being told what to do by the government and I don't like heavy regulations in my business. So I always, you know, like the Republican party from what the rhetoric is. And, 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 but when I see behavior like that of trying to disenfranchise groups of people based on who they are Mm -hmm. and, you know, that is well documented. I, you know, I don't need to get into it too much deeper here, but if someone wants to debate me, they can email you and we can have a debate on that and I can bring in facts. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's kind of where I always felt like, well, why don't you just go into the black communities and just compete for their ideas? That's right. It's instead of just always playing these games of, you know, limiting polling locations and doing this and that, because in the end, you know, the, the way that the demographics are going in this country, you know, you got to keep twisting yourself in knots and playing these games and it's going to get harder and harder. That's exactly and so, right. and I think that's what led to a little bit this last couple of weeks, um, and then the insurrection stuff. Because I think a lot of people in this country have a hard time believing that um, 
if everybody exercises their right to vote and has a chance to do it, that they're not going to agree with a smaller minority of thought in this country. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, it's, it's just interesting. And the other thing I think that we saw, too, with the insurrection, um, which makes me realize that I don't think, and I was naive to this, and I didn't used to say this publicly, but I don't care anymore. You know, it's a beautiful thing about hitting my mid-40s, um, <laughs> is that, you know, I think a lot of Americans don't want democracy. I don't oh, think they believe that everybody should participate in this thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that's part of it, too, when they when they bring these cities and all that, because I think all that is also done to remind other Americans that might feel that way, like these people shouldn't be participating in our process. Mm-hmm. They don't deserve the right to vote or the right to sit at the table with us and make decisions, these high level decisions. And so I think that's a challenge that America has too, is really, you know, I don't know, like deprogramming is, is, is a word I don't like because it sounds like you're, you're doing something nefarious, but it's more like if we're a democracy, then everybody participates. And if we're not a democracy, then you should speak your mind and say that you don't want everyone participating. That's right. That's it. You know, like if you don't feel that, people in the inner city have a right to vote because you think they're going to vote for handouts or something, then at least say that. Yeah. But if you don't say it, then you shouldn't be disenfranchising people for their vote. And so, you know, that's where I think what we've seen in this recent period too, is that the actions of some like those in the Congress and the Senate that don't want to certify the election, what they're basically saying is, you know, the, and, and, and this kind of meme of we need to throw out the illegal votes and only count the legal votes. Well, there's been no proof of illegal votes on mass. So if you're just trying to like like the way the president was when we heard that tape with the secretary of state of Georgia, find me the votes or throw out these other votes. Mm-hmm. So, again, that's why I think instead of being honest and just saying, I don't think these people should be counted because of X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of the rhetoric, you know, runs into itself and it doesn't make sense because, oh, I believe in democracy, but yet you just heard me tell you to throw out these, these legally cast votes. So which one is it? So I think there's a lot to be unpacked, but I'm, you know, again, I'm glad this is all happening because it's sunlight. That's right. And so and so, the, you know, the best thing that can happen is everyone's learning, again, how the system works and, and how some people's attitudes really are. And so, yep. again, I was naive to this yep. before. I don't blame but, you. You know, um, we're going to end on a much higher note because Peter sent me a list today of how many um, Jewish men and we're three Jewish men mm-hmm. here um, are now operating in seats of power how many Jewish men Joe Biden um, has put into certain um, positions. That was a long list, Peter. I think there's more Jewish men in seats of power than there ever have been. So, Michael, before you do that, I just want to say a couple of things. Number one, I seem to be in the dark here, but some people have said I've been operating in the dark for a long time. <laughs> and I guess that's OK as long as it's not, not dark money. Yeah. Um, number two, I think I deserve some sort of an award or medal or, or ribbon. Because, as you both know, I have a Ph.D. in over-talking, and tonight I just try to be uh, yeah. a fly on the wall here. So, Tundi, um, it and, had to be you. you know, on a more serious that. note, though, to help you wrap it up, um, 
we we all know that that the Biden administration is is approaching uh, their new position in the next day and a half um, with a three pronged approach, um, which is the economy, the impeachment, and the coronavirus. And I think um, you know as we go up this very hilly, very icy, rocky, uh, curvy road uh, together. Hopefully, we're wearing adequate seat belts and and airbags because we are going to go through quite a challenging period. And I do, my personal belief is that we have to attack the virus first and foremost. Yes, we have to uh, be able to deal with all three simultaneously, but the other two will not end up anywhere unless we control and take take over of uh, this, this terrible virus that we're dealing, we're all dealing with. And it doesn't matter who you are, mm-hmm. whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and it's really a crime and I'll say not just a shame, but a crime right. that we've allowed people to make mask wearing into a political statement. And, and that's really, you know, just horrible. But we do need to get together. And you open the show by talking about following the science. I've been doing that for, for the last uh, whole entire year now. And there are some very exciting, enthusiastic scientists in, in this world right now that are helping us get to this next place. And I hope that we will all get together behind them and with them to get us to a much healthier place. Because if we're healthier physically, we'll get healthier mentally. If we're healthier mentally, we'll be able to more easily deal with the economy issues and with the whole impeachment issue. And maybe we can get away from us against them more so uh, than we are right now. So, you know, uh, you know, in, in some ways I've been very concerned and, and even some days scared about where what we're facing and another, uh, other times, like now, I'm feeling more enthusiastic and more um, energetic about looking forward and having uh, us move into 2021 and 2022 in a much better, healthier way. I just wanted to make that statement. All right. Well, we're going to – this is the longest 62 who knew we have had. It's been yes, an hour and a half. We just set a record. Yes, we set a record. Um, we also set a record for fewest words said by Peter Gelbox in 90 minutes. Uh, and that's going right in the Albany. You know, the hour and a half, 62, who knew? No one's going to give a shit. But the other one, that's going right in the Albany. Uh, I'll have to show them the tape. They'll have to count words just to verify. But we are going to leave. Uh, we are going to leave now. Uh, we learned a, a lot of good things. Uh, don't be a Sith. You know? Yes, that's don't my favorite, Sith. actually. Yes, yeah, because you know, only a Sith deals in absolutes. Not all of everybody is good. Not all of everybody is bad. Make your own opinions. Um, from that list that you sent today, Peter, of so many Jewish men uh, coming into the government with seats of power, I know that as a um, securities person, uh, Tunde is not allowed to make uh, investment um suggestions in this type of forum. I don't have any of those licenses. I'm going to make a suggestion to our audience with this many Jewish people coming into power, buy stocks in Chinese restaurants because they are going to boom, okay? Uh, Specifically, Christmas Day. So if you have an opportunity to become part of your Chinese restaurant, that's where you'll find a lot of Jewish people on a constant level. Tunde, first, Peter, thank you as always. Thank you for being here. Thank you for introducing me to another wonderful person. Tunde, really and truly, especially the last half hour, but the yeah, whole no, 90 minutes. It. 
and I hope you'll come back. I know. Yeah, you no, are, anytime. This is right. great. Maybe we, you two, can come back when we bring on the Weitzman Institute because you're both involved. Yep. Right. All righty. Thank you so much. And um, take care. Take Thank care. Thank you, guys. Bye bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye.